Hey everybody, welcome to episode 19. Today's episode is with Kinjal Shaw. She's an investor at Blockchain Capital uh, and a leading thinker in the crypto space. Uh, Kinjal is someone who I really respect and learn a lot from, so today's episode is, is one I know that you'll love. Uh, today, Kinjal and I discuss how growing up in an immigrant household shaped her views on money, uh, why optimizing for being uncomfortable in her career led her into crypto, why participating in crypto is the best way to get started in the space. It's really a space of doing, not just watching. How NFTs and DAOs, which I'm sure you guys have heard of, really democratize equity and ownership. Um, and she talks about the future of each. Um, we, we also discussed the investment DAO that she uh, co-founded um, that enables underrepresented folks to invest in underrepresented founders. So it's a really great initiative. And finally, we end on why Gen Z inspires her and makes her feel optimistic about the future. Uh, really hope you guys enjoy, enjoy this episode. I will see you guys next week. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Secure the Bag, a podcast whose mission is to demystify personal finance, investing, investing in yourself um, through our amazing guest stories. And today, um, I have an amazing guest for you. Uh, today, I have uh, Kinjal Shaw. Kinjal is an investor. She works at Blockchain Capital. She's also a prolific writer, an artist, um, and you know, uh, had a, had a chance recently to kind of get to know her better. And um, I'm really excited for today's episode. Kinjal, thanks so much for being on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, of course. I know we recently connected on Twitter and kind of got a chance to to get to know each other through a thread that. Um, I wrote around um, investing and, and really about the way that uh, we think about money coming from an immigrant background. I know you had a similar experience uh, growing up, and I wanted to kind of dive into that a little bit. Maybe you want to like, introduce yourself a little bit more to the audience and uh, maybe uh, talk a little bit about how you, um, you know, how you grew up and any early kind of impact on the way that you viewed money and investing growing up. Yeah, definitely. Um... So yeah, as you mentioned, you know, I'm an investor in the space, but I think if you had asked like 12 year old me, I never would have imagined that I would grow up and, and become a professional investor. So uh, coming, I think just from an immigrant family, you know, we were very much middle class. Um, I think it was like ingrained into my sort of every move early on to save and to look for good deals, right? I think that's very much a mindset where you come over, especially my parents came over, um, you know, first generation to America and everything feels, uh, it feels so expensive when you come to America for the first time, you know, particularly coming from India. And so I grew up very much this mindset that, um, you know, every single dollar is valuable, like 15 cents off is still important. Uh, 50 cents off is still important. And I still have that mindset today. You know, I think some, a lot of my friends and a lot of like people I interact with, like, you might not know how much a gallon of milk costs. And I still think about what does a gallon of milk cost? It's just, this thing that's kind of been ingrained into like the way I shop and the way that I use my you know money today. Um, so I'd say that that's the type of attitude I had growing up. And you know there was always um, this idea that like investing was viewed to be important but risky, right? It was very it was something that you definitely considered very carefully before investing. Um, and you know there was of course the dot com bust where, you know, we certainly lost money in the stock market at that point. And so really just understanding what you're investing in um, became just a key principle. 
And it kind of scared me, to be honest, from investing, um, particularly when I was, you know, just starting to work. I, I wasn't fully sure that, that I could trust myself and trust my own research. And so that took a lot of time to sort of build that muscle. Um, but yeah, I'll pause there. I think you can kind of get a gist of, you know, what it was like to, to grow up in, in my shoes, but um, definitely a unique, I think, way to think about money growing up. Yeah, no, I think uh, I share a lot of those, um, that kind of background and philosophy coming from an uh, Indian immigrant family as well. You've written about, you know, I think at least from your adult life, COVID, like specifically March 2020, was probably one of your first experiences where there was like kind of a fairly dramatic downturn that potentially had, like, it was kind of looking into the abyss a little bit. And, you know, given the background you just shared, like, tell us about how did, like, how was that for you? Like, how did you mentally handle that? Was that something where you got freaked out? Um, were you kind of able to kind of weather that storm? Like, how did you um, approach that? Yeah, so COVID was interesting, right? Because it was this shock to the system that everybody felt, right? There was no, like, differences no matter where you were in the world. Like, you felt the shock of COVID. And so I think I felt um, fortunate in terms of where I was with, the work that I do, right? Like I'm what we call now like a knowledge worker. I can work with a laptop anywhere. And so from that regard, I wasn't severely impacted economically, um, but I totally understand how much, you know, the entire world was in pain. And I think it was just a big adjustment of um, feeling like you just don't know what the future is going to look like for the next 12 months or for the next two years. And, and just kind of navigating that, like a lot of folks who are millennials right now or Gen Z have never really experienced um, even like some sort of economy downturn, right? 2008, we were, we were quite young. So um, I think it was just a, a little bit of like a, a shock to kind of get over, which I'm sure everybody felt, but I really sort of felt lucky and fortunate to have a job that I could do from the comfort of anywhere versus so many folks who have to go to work um, on a daily basis, including my own parents, right? And so having to see you know, people that I'm close to still have to work through the entire um, pandemic, which is just really challenging, but uh, definitely not in a place to, to have any complaints, I guess, is what I would say. No, for sure. From an investing perspective, I know before, you know, you had talked growing up that like investing, investing has kind of always been viewed as like inherently risky. So when that, you know, the first three or four weeks in March, at least in the equities market, obviously in crypto as well, um, was a pretty um, significant downturn like walk us through like what you know when that was happening were you like trying to kind of suppress some of those instincts that maybe you've you've had or maybe grew up with about trying to to really act to make some action to kind of mitigate that risk um how did you kind of work through those emotions yeah so it's a great question i feel like by the time march 2020 came around i have been a little i was a little like um what's the word, primed with the crypto market swings. So it didn't really feel quite as uh, jarring to me is what I would say. And I'm also, you know, which well, I'm sure we'll talk about later, but like I am exposed to both equities and of course crypto pretty significantly. And so in that instance, it was really just making sure I felt comfortable about where um, the positions that I was holding in and that even through some sort of downturn, I, I could see them long-term five, 10 years still doing really well. Um, and those are the types of positions that I hold. I don't really do anything in the shorter term. And so I've, I've kind of built up this mindset now where I'm really thinking about like 
do I want to be holding this equity for the next 10 years or do I want to be holding this crypto asset for the next 10 years? And if so, I'm just not going to pay attention as much to like short-term dips. So a little bit like, yes, definitely a little bit jarring, but um, I've kind of built that muscle up now at that point. So it was a little, it was a little less scary, I guess. Right. And maybe as a quick segue into like your career path, it's, it's kind of an interesting parallel. Like I think, you know, you started with a fairly traditional, dare I say, career path. Like I know you worked at Fidelity and you got into crypto, I think around three years ago. How was that transition like, you know, uh, kind of similar from, we just talked about investing. Did you kind of view that similarly where you're like, hey, I think this space is going to be something really big over the next five to 10 plus years. And it's like the right kind of investment in yourself. And kind of how did you view that? And also like from a family dynamic perspective, was that, what was the sell like to your parents um, going into a space that, you know, didn't have a lot of history behind it? Yeah. So I, yeah, I definitely followed like a traditional career path, right? I was working at um, Fidelity at the time, you know, doing like strategy consulting, very, you know, I studied economics in college. Um, So followed this like kind of straight line path. Um, and then I came across crypto and I was like, wow, my mind is blown. I think this is the future of um, finance and not only finance, but like the future of crypto or sorry, the future of everything, you know, just the way we work and the way we, um, you know, play and all of it. And so I felt kind of taken by crypto and it almost felt like a once in a lifetime opportunity where if I took the career risk at that moment, it would either pay off in spades or, you know, I would have to like go with my tail between my legs and find something else. Um, so definitely felt like one of those moments. But the reason I decided to just kind of take the leap and, and, and jump into it is I, you know, have built up this life of like feeling comfortable. And I think I, I always felt comfortable with the choices that I was making. And I knew that I was learning the most when I didn't feel comfortable. Um, and so I think like the double whammy of investing and then again investing in a space where it's constantly changing and really new um it felt scary to me but also felt like hey Kendall like this is it you know this is like the opportunity is right here um you either jump in or you're going to constantly be wondering like what if so I felt like that was that was kind of this moment for me um and I had a lot of like realizations once I got into the investing role um, because I didn't really know what investing meant. So I think like what I thought it was going to be versus what it actually was are just two very different things. Um, and in terms of like family, you know, I think my parents understood the, the desire to go and, and do something new and they had enough confidence in me to sort of pick something that's not um, like too, too crazy. So I think they were like fairly ch- you know, chill about it, honestly. But um, I'm sure if like the past couple of years hadn't gone the way that they've gone, then I would be having a different um, conversation with you right now. No, I love that. I love the notion of continuous learning. I'm such a big subscriber to if you're not uncomfortable and your learning isn't exponential uh, in your current role or whatever you're doing now, then you need to like reconfigure and figure that out. I also love the asymmetric upside thing. I think that's something that a lot of people don't think too enough about. And I know, you know, having just worked at Amazon, Jeff B used to always talk about that at Amazon where he'd be like, Hey, in business or in life, like, you know, asymmetric upside is something where unlike baseball, where you can only get four runs, you know, on a grand slam, like in life or business or investing, you can get hundred X thousand X type uh, returns. Right. And so I think something that's super important to, to think through. Um, so I know a lot of listeners, I know, you know, crypto has obviously been a 
a, a rapidly growing space, but there are some people out there that are still trying to kind of figure, figuring out like how to even approach this space. And that doesn't have to necessarily be investing in money. It could be, but it could also be like how to become more involved, maybe even work in the space. So for someone who is in that boat where they're like, how do I even get started? Like, what do I even think about learning first? Um, you know, as someone who's been through this journey now for, for three years or longer, um, what, what, what would be your recommendation? Yeah, so I guess here's like what I would probably do as like steps one, two, and three. So first is like set your, set your own pace. I think like crypto feels like it's moving really, really, really fast and you don't have to abide by that. So sort of decide like what it is that you want to do. What do you want to learn? Um, and I would start with researching like a specific area at a time and, and resisting the temptation to jump around. So if you want to learn about Bitcoin and spend time on Bitcoin, if you want to learn about Ethereum, do the same thing. Um, and there's a lot of resources that are out there. I'm not going to get too like nitty gritty, but I would just basically say like, pick a focus area, set your own pace. And then step three is like getting involved, but doesn't mean you have to buy the, the you know crypto asset. You could also just play with some of the products that are out there, download a few wallets, um, test out maybe some of like the trading products, test out like buy an NFT, join a DAO, um, basically anything that actually gets you involved and maybe gets a little bit more like time or skin in the game is what I would recommend because you're, you're just going to feel much more incentivized to kind of stick with it and keep learning. Um, but hopefully not feel like you have to, you know, spend a lot of money to be able to like get involved with crypto. Um, yeah, that's kind of what I would say. Yeah. And no, I love that as well. I know, um, you know, Mike D from Twitter, like from rainbow, I think he dropped a, uh, a funny reply to somebody who was thinking about getting into crypto and basically his his um his advice is like you have to play with it right you can't just read about it because it's something that has to almost be experienced uh at some fundamental level so i think yeah getting into like downloading wallets getting into nfts checking out a DAO, i think are great ways to begin feeling um what this space could grow into and become speaking of which i know on the nft and DAO side a lot of people may not know what those things are so do you want to quickly um i know you've you you think about this space a lot you've written extensively about both of these topics do you want to kind of quickly describe what those things are and you know you could pick one or talk about both but you know what specifically about you know nfts or DAOs uh, makes you really excited moving forward yeah definitely okay so nft stands for non-fungible tokens um, it's honestly this kind of like icky word, but it stands for something that's um, pretty cool. Basically, it's a file that lives in a blockchain um, that users can own. Uh, so anybody can kind of purchase this file and prove that they own it. Um, so that's kind of like my high level definition for an NFT. And then for DAOs, DAO stands for a decentralized autonomous organization. Um, but the way I think about it is it's a community with a shared uh, bank account or shared cap table. So usually it's a community that has some sort of shared mission um, and they have the financial sort of governance aspect as well, where they have a budget or they have a treasury and they're doing something with that treasury. Um, and honestly, NFTs and DAOs really are intertwined. The, the kind of concept that makes me really excited is how can you turn your um, your users into owners and therefore give your owners the ability to share in the upside of what you're building. Um, and if I can just tie this back really quickly to just what it feels like to be investing, right? Uh, when you're investing in something, you're basically saying, okay, on a scale of like one to 10, 
Um, what is the probability of success? What does success look like? And um, how can I create a portfolio that's sufficiently sort of diversified in different areas of interest with different probabilities of success, right? So that's just kind of like how you might want to think about how somebody could think about their, their portfolio. When I think about um, building wealth, a lot of it also is just having ownership in things, right? And actually saying like, I have equity. Um, right now, like the average person might have equity in their home. Um, and then they might have equity in the company that they work for if it's a startup. And then the next piece is actually investing in, in stocks or doing, you know, doing more in the public markets. Um, but there isn't a lot of exposure to early stage investing, um, whether that's, you know, like venture or angel investing or um, just anything that's really on the private side is, is relatively inaccessible, but has a lot of asymmetric upside. And so when I think about like, NFTs and DAOs and a lot of these communities, it's basically saying like all these places where you probably spend a lot of your time and your day online and social platforms and networks and supporting people. Um, what if you had the ability to share in that upside and actually kind of own a piece of it um, in the form of equity of like a very early stage project? So I think that's really cool. Um, I hope that we have more of it. And this is not to say that everybody's going to get rich off of like joining a community, but it's more to say, you know, could you potentially do what you love and make money while you're doing it? Um, and so I think that's really like the notion behind owning NFTs or joining a DAO and, um, you know, holding that token associated with it. That's a great breakdown. I know NFTs have kind of, you know, been buzzed, like super buzzy. They're, they're on the Saturday Night Live and all over the place. What would your kind of response to be to say, like, is, is this like, you know, is, was NF, like this NFT kind of craze, like, that first hype cycle, but you think there's lots of staying power, it sounds like that's where you are, or do you think that there's going to be some fundamental changes in this space as we move forward? I think there's going to be some big changes as we move forward. I think like the biggest unanswered question as it relates to NFTs is IP. And if you actually own the IP associated with what you're buying, um, there's obviously a lot of hype around, you know, projects today or things like Top Shot, for example, where you're buying an NBA clip really unclear um, what like the IP rights are associated with that. And I think the beauty of an NFT is that hopefully when you own the NFT, you also own some of the IP associated with it. So I expect there to be some pretty big changes moving forward just in terms of rights around them. Um, but I definitely don't think that like they're gone. There's obviously a, a, a hype cycle for sure. Um, but I don't think that it, you know, it's kind of popped. It's more just that I think people have relaxed a little bit and now are trying to figure out some of the problems that we uncovered um, or questions that are unanswered um, in the past six months. And then on the DAO side, um, I know you've, uh, you know, been looking or not looking, but you've recently started a DAO, a syndicate DAO to uh, invest. You want to talk and I'm going to butcher the name, so I'll let you let you um, pronounce it. But you want to talk about what that is and what was your inspiration to start it? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I recently co-founded a, a DAO called Komorebi and Komorebi basically translates, um, it's, it's a Japanese phrase or expression that basically means the light filtering through the trees. Um, and we just thought this was like a really poetic way of saying, you know, the light that filters through the trees is really what, um, makes the forest light up. And we really want to highlight and, um, invest in founders that are typically, uh, overlooked or sort of less um, capitalized. And so we are investing in founder, female founders or non-binary founders in the crypto ecosystem. 
Um, and so we, you know, basically launched a DAO using syndicate protocol. Uh, we have 30 plus members in the DAO and all of the DAO members have contributed to um, the pool of capital. And then we also all sort of make joint decisions around where we want to invest in space. Um, and yeah, you know, I just, I think investing in the, in the past three years, I've realized just how few dollars actually make it into the hands of women. Um, and I really want, wanted to, to be able to take some steps towards fixing that or, or helping it, helping this problem. And so that's kind of where the idea was born. No, that's amazing. Uh, plus a hundred on, you know, there's so many founders out there, women and, and really other folks that um, have traditionally found it really hard to, to get investment. And I think, um, you know, where we are going with the world, I think there's just so many problems to solve. I think having as many people at the table to help is going to be super important. Talk us a little bit, you know, you talked about this as a DAO. What is the key difference between like maybe creating a more traditional venture fund versus a DAO? Like, you know, when you have the 30 people and when they're all at the table, it, like what's your consensus mechanism? Like, does everyone have to agree on an investment? Um, like what, why is it different than a traditional venture vehicle? Yeah, so I would say like different in, in two big ways. First is just barriers to entry, like barriers to getting started. So, um, it, you know, typically if you want to start a fund, it's going to cost you thousands of dollars just to do the paperwork behind it, let alone like go and find limited partners to invest in your fund. Um, whereas doing something on chain is actually quite easy. It costs us, you know, a couple hundred dollars to actually set up the DAO um, and contribute the capital to it. And then we were able to get LPs um, you know, who they're not LPs per se, but basically contributing to the DAO um, all kind of come together with this aligned mission, right? So it comes back to this community of folks who kind of want to achieve the same goals. And here in this case, we all want to see more female founders get female and non-binary founders get, get um, capital. So I think that's the main, that's the first difference. And then the second difference in terms of consensus is um, we do have like a voting system in place. So we, we try to make sure that everybody is involved with the decision-making um, in terms of, you know, who actually has a say at the end of the day. Traditionally in funds, LPs are not part of the decision-making, whereas in this structure, it's very flat. And so even though there might be a few people who are kind of doing the diligencing for any given um, investment, the entire team kind of comes up to speed, the entire collective rather, and then votes at the end of the day. And we have to have like a majority um, who are in favor for the investment. We have a, a specific sort of number that we, we look for. Got it. And is the voting weighted um, or, you know, someone like yourself as a co-founder or is it all kind of equal? It's all equal right now. Um, and we, we really wanted to make sure that was the case just because, you know, I think everyone has a different ability to, to contribute capital. And so we didn't want it to be heavily swayed per se by some of the folks, by someone who might not be able to, you know, put in as much versus someone else. Um, great, no, that's, that's an amazing initiative. Um, one, so kind of jumping around a little bit, um, a tweet that I thought uh, that, that you wrote that I thought was really interesting. And I know you come, you, you know, you're talking to a bunch of entrepreneurs and founders, many of them, which are Gen Z. Um, you wrote, and I'll kind of read this verbatim for the audience, uh, Gen Z traits I admire. They are not camera shy. They know how to market themselves, you know, via TikTok and Instagram, uh, and creativity is valued from a young age. Everyone's bio reads influencer, artist, poet, et cetera. So, you know, as you've kind of looked at Gen Z and, and looked at Gen Z entrepreneurs, what do you think is, you know, maybe underlooked or maybe a unique um, kind of spin on how you think they 
they go change the world in their own lens compared to maybe older generations? Yeah, so I, I'm honestly really envious of Gen Z. Like I wish that um, I inhibited more, like I had some more of these traits. I think like the first thing that I've, I've kind of realized in conversations is that um, they, they have a unique perspective from a really young age and they're, they're very vocal about it. And so a lot of them you'll find are very passionate about a cause that they're, that's close to their heart or, um, you know, like a specific type of like living or whatever it may be. And I think the reason why they're so, there's so much conviction is because they're constantly telling the world something, right? Everybody is always online talking to people. Um, even if you're not like a big influencer, you probably have like, you know, a thousand people following you somewhere and you're kind of showing and sharing your beliefs. So I think that's the one thing that, um, I didn't have when I was growing up and I feel like it was, it was just not normal to like constantly tell everybody what you were thinking. And now that I'm on Twitter, I'm like, oh, wow. I'm like, all these people um, are reading my tweets and I'm like, who's even reading this, right? I'm just kind of like tweeting into the abyss and it feels kind of strange, but that's feel feeling very normal, I think for Gen Z. And then the second piece is that I think for them, and I don't want to like generalize, but I think work is becoming very fluid with play. And um, fundamentally what that means is like, we've started to see this where investing is, is kind of becoming like a status signal or becoming like an entertainment vehicle where like people are investing in culture and in investing in meme stocks. And I think when, um, you know, people are becoming influencers, they're creating their own sort of like brand mogul based. They're like becoming this mogul of like, you know, this is who I represent and I have merchandise and I have a you know, a, a Patreon and I have like so on and so forth. They're just really becoming like their own businesses. Um, and so I think like Gen Z in general is just going to be a fundamentally a different consumer, a different user. And so all of these, you know, companies that we're investing in are, are really going to be geared differently towards, um, towards that user. Yeah, no, whenever I talk to, to, to people that are, that are Gen Z, I'm always similar to you. So impressed. I think you know, one thing, at least, you know, um, growing up, at least in my generation, it was always about fitting in, right? It was like, how do you, how do you find your place on the boat to fit in and, you know, have your career and be successful? And, and it was kind of like this path for you kind of charted out just really a matter of like exactly which road you wanted to take. And I think with Gen Z, you know, whether it's social media, like you outlined or other, other kind of avenues, it's very much a like make your own way type um, thing. And I think it's it's really empowering for this generation to really be like, I could fit in, but it's kind of a little bit lame. And I'd rather kind of really figure out what I'm most passionate by, tell everybody and kind of you know, make my own way. And I think that's gonna be something that's just really amazing. I think you see that all over the place, right? Like even if like people like Greta Thunberg on the climate side, uh, the the, the, the students from Parkland um, with the school shooting, like just the way they talked about gun violence and, and kind of advocating for reform is was just like so heartwarming and amazing for me. Cause I, I know if I was in that situation when I went to high school, it would kind of be like more of a silent, like, yeah, we should do something, but I wouldn't be, I wouldn't feel comfortable just being super vocal. And I think, you know, Gen Z being able to kind of capture that voice to your point is just going to be so instrumental in changing the world. And I think obviously, you know, the world needs a lot of change. So I'm super excited for the future. And I, whenever I talk to someone from Gen Z, I'm like, you know, a lot of people are kind of bearish or unsure about the future. But I, I, after every time I talk to somebody young, I'm like, I'm really confident that um, the world's going to be better.
totally agree. Um, so, you know, I wanted to, I, I have my normal last question, but before we get into that, for anyone who wants to chat to you, um, maybe they have a crypto idea they want to run by you um, or, or just kind of generally connect, what's the best place for them to, to reach you? Um, yeah, you can reach me on Twitter. I check my Twitter DM. So um, I'm underscore Kindle B Shaw. Uh, so yeah, find me on Twitter and I would love to chat. Cool. We'll add that to the show notes. So the last question I like to ask um, all my guests is, you know, on the investing and personal finance journey, there's always somebody who's maybe a little bit underlooked that kind of was instrumental in shaping your worldview uh, one way or the other. So is there anyone you kind of want to give a shout out, um, you know, from, from your experience that's been super helpful? Yeah, I mean, I think my colleagues at Blockchain Capital have really been been instrumental for me. Um, and the reason being is I, I learned how to invest professionally before I learned how to invest personally. So I really felt like I was kind of learning to invest at early stage, um, you know, crypto companies, and then taking those learnings and applying it to my own personal portfolio. And I feel just really lucky to have that um, framework because I, I think I, it, it, leads to different outcomes than if I were just going to go into this, you know, stock market and just kind of buy a few ETFs or something. Um, so yeah, really grateful for them. And then if I had to pick another, another person, I would say that definitely my partner, cause he, he pushes me to, to be more risky, which, um, sometimes you need that person like sitting over your shoulder being like, you're really, you're really not that exposed to X, Y, and Z, or like, you know, helping you kind of make the decision and push the button when you, when you don't feel like you can. So that's great. And this has been awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Hey, guys. Appreciate the support. If you guys like this episode, please subscribe uh, in Spotify or Apple, however you listen to this podcast. If you have any feedback, please reach out to, to me directly. The information is in the show notes. Thanks for the uh, love as always.